This yes. is hell. All right. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And on today's show, the federal government, the Trump administration, is failing to supply the American public with the necessary protective equipment to keep us safe from the virus. The government is even failing to get food to people who have lost their jobs and are now going hungry due to COVID-19. So what happens when we can't get what we need to keep us safe? What happens when we don't have the money to buy whatever food is still available on store shelves? At this moment, due to the outbreak, you may not know where your next meal is coming from for the very first time in your life. And not knowing when you will eat again can be a very frightening experience that may change your personal politics and worldview forever. Who can you turn to when the state and the market are not there to help feed you and keep you alive? Mutual aid, that's who or what. Parallel to our traditional distribution system, mutual aid is all across the country and going global as communities realize capitalism fails in crises and disasters. And neoliberal governments are far more interested in profits than people prioritizing the economy over humanity. We'll learn about the transformative act of mutual aid and how the act alone could lead to revolution when we speak with Matt Peterson and Maria Heron, members of Woodbine, an experimental hub in Ridgewood, Queens, New York, for developing the practices, skills, and tools needed to build autonomy. Matt is an organizer at Woodbine and is currently helping to coordinate the food pantry. Maria is a member of Woodbine as well and has transformed Mil Mundos, a nearby Brooklyn bookstore, into a mutual aid hub and depot in collaboration with Bushwick Mutual Aid. Woodbine collectively posted the article, Mutual Aid, Social Distancing, and Dual Power in the State of Emergency at eFlux, which you can find at conversations.e. Flux.com, as well as organizing for survival in New York City at Commune Magazine's website, communemag.org, I believe, .com, .com. Find out more about Woodbine at their site, woodbine.nyc. Follow them on Twitter, at woodbineNYC, as well as on Instagram, at the same place, woodbine.nyc. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? I got an argument about whether it was weird to wear a button-down shirt to bed. Is that weird? <laughs> it is weird. Oh, is it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was I hoping you would say it's not weird. I have not, well, I don't care what you wear to bed, but <laughs> I have not worn anything to bed in a very long time. At least sober. I have not worn anything sober to bed in a very long time. I'm working with uh, full pants, full button-down shirt. I've seen through the need to have pajamas. <laughs> Just wear what you wear outside in bed. Alex will have this week's Hangover Cure. We'll share this week in Rotten History and tell you what's happening on this week's show. And we have some listeners to thank for sharing last week's shows as well, but I'm not too sure if we're going to be able to get to that today, maybe in the future. But first, Alex, it's very important. We have breaking news. My neighbor has reported COVID-like symptoms. His, his chest is burning. His muscles are aching. He feels feverish. He can't sleep. He's been sweating all night and has gone to the hospital to get test tested to see if he has COVID-19. More breaking news, Alex. My neighbor is tested negative for COVID-19. Even more breaking news, Alex. My neighbor who reported chest pains, fever, and inability to sleep and is now reporting that before getting all of these, he is now telling us that he had ingested an edible that he made himself filled with psilocybin. This just in, Alex, my neighbor has magic mushrooms, and he is not sharing. However, he is going to the hospital to get COVID tests. Oh, good Lord. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover Hoarding cure. is such a problem, isn't it, during these <laughs> pandemic times? Hoarding all the mushrooms. I know. This week's hangover cure. Don't you love that, though? Is, uh, <laughs> Dude. The hospital would be the worst. I wouldn't, even if I was hurt, if I was on mushrooms, I, the last place I'd go to was a hospital. Can you imagine waking up the day after tripping and going, wow, I think I, <laughs> that feeling last night must have been COVID-19. <laughs> Those are some crappy mushrooms. This week's Hangover Cure is a combination of plant extracts, roots, and minerals. An article, that's, that's probably all we're going to be eating in 10 years. <laughs> An article at Scientific Focus headlined, Plants Before Wine, You're More Likely to Feel Fine, study says. 
Writer Amy Barnett uh, reports, headaches and nausea after drinking alcohol have been thought to be caused by a lack of electrolytes in the body, a combination of minerals that help balance acid levels. But analysis by scientists at the Institute of Molecular Physiology in Mainz, Mainz, Germany, Mainz, Germany showed the people who ingested extra plant extracts and minerals after drinking suffered fewer hangover symptoms than those who just consumed more minerals. A combination of fruits, leaves, and shoots reduced head pain and sickness. 45 minutes after a test group stopped drinking beer, white wine, or white wine <laughs> spritzer, they're given water with a supplement including ginger root, Barbados cherry, magnesium, potassium, and other plants and minerals. Afterwards, the study headache. The study found headache intensity down 34%, nausea 42%, while feelings of indifference, f- damn, I need this, fell by 27%, and restlessness by 41%. Sounds like your neighbor needed this, too. That makes this week's hangover cure a combination of plants, extracts, plant extracts, roots, and minerals. Can you imagine telling somebody, hey, I think my uh, headache intensity is down 34%. It's extremely German. <laughs> Very German. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. In case you missed the news this morning, President Trump announced that due to the global pandemic and for the safety, security, and public health of every American citizen in order to ensure the sanctity and protect the legitimacy of democracy in the United States, the administration has announced that during this moment unique in history, while we are in this state of emergency, the United States will temporarily be suspending this November's presidential election. Okay, that did not happen, and I'm sorry for having put you through that frightening thought experiment, that imaginary fiction of there not being any U.S. elections this fall. And I'll gladly pay for any dry cleaning or laundry bills due to any physical trauma, any completely understandable biofeedback your bowels may have had at that frightening moment when you thought the election day had been called off. Really, I'm very, very sorry, but for... A second there, were you worried? Did you believe what I was saying? Because in an age where the President of the United States is cheering an armed, unarmed militias to enter government buildings in states whose governors disagree with the President, forcing legislators in the state to do their constitutional duties while wearing bulletproof vests within the legislative chamber itself as they vote at their desks, it's not that unbelievable to think that Trump would be calling off the elections. It's weird enough to see democratically elected members of the legislature sitting there in medical face masks due to a global pandemic. It's even weirder when you notice they are all wearing latex gloves. It gets to its weirdest when you notice the bulletproof vests meant to protect the legislators from the heavily armed mob just outside the chamber's doors. A mob that is not only armed with AR-15s, but also very likely armed with a dangerous bioweapon known as COVID-19 because... They're not doing a very good job at social distancing, and the only ones wearing any personal protective equipment seem to be those who are trying to hide their identity more than keeping their colleagues safe. It's all in a day's work for an elected representative of the state of Michigan. Wake up, get dressed, have some coffee, a little breakfast, put on your face mask to protect yourself from a deadly pandemic, put on a bulletproof vest to protect yourself from those who do not want to protect themselves from the pandemic, then run a gauntlet of these armed human petri dishes, hoping none of them starts shooting, and then in that very intimidating setting, voting on the very issues the armed mob is protesting just outside the door, and voting in a way that will be completely public, and the armed thugs just outside those doors will know exactly how you voted before you leave and try to get to your car and back home so you can take off that bulletproof vest and face mask and self-quarantine from the family you love because you just ran a gauntlet of virus. That's the America that President Trump has made great again. That's the America he promised with all of his dog whistles and bullhorns at rally after rally and tweet after tweet. He's been promising fascism for at least four years and notably and probably much longer to his closest friends and fellow fascists. Fellow fascists like Phyllis Schlafly, the late Schlafly, who convinced Christian evangelicals and fundamentalists alike to look past all of Trump's moral and sinful transgressions and support him in 2016 and beyond. Sure, Trump's no Christian, but that's not what matters to evangelicals and fundamentalists. 
They're not as much into the Christian part as the evangelizing fundamentalism part, and that unequivocal and unquestioned blind faith fits in perfectly with the rise of fascism and Donald Trump. So what happens if Trump does announce that this November's vote for the president of the United States and all elected representatives have been canceled? How would the public react? Sure, his base of supporters will, with that fundamentalist evangelical faith in Trump, will finally have that altered state of religious ecstasy, that height of spiritual awareness, including visions, euphoria, even speaking in tongues, lock her up, fake news out of control, Gina, perfect phone call, build that wall, winning, 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 stupid, weak, losers, deep state, political correctness, swamp, smart, tough, dangerous, bad, sad, amazing, veterans, classy, tremendous, terrific, military, make America great again, as they writhe on the floor foaming at the mouth with joy now that finally fascism has come to America and the Defense Production Act will be immediately put in place to switch over all industrial production to the making of bootstraps. They finally have the authoritarian leader they have been waiting for. They've been wanting for so long, so how easily do you think they will accept defeat? That is, if by miracle of all miracles, Donald Trump actually loses to the worst candidate the Democratic Party could have possibly nominated, Joe Biden and his cast of seven sexual misconduct accusers. Because nothing says rallying the Democratic Party base like running someone from the neoliberal Clinton wing of the party who has serious Me Too issues. Worse, what if President Trump does more than only canceling elections this fall? On CNN, April 15th, they reported President Tr Donald Trump threatened to apply a never-used provision of the U.S. Constitution to allow himself to adjourn the U.S. Congress and push through many of his nominees who typically require Senate confirmation. The move came days after he claimed that he has total authority over the states before backing down. What if Trump not only announces that there will be no election in November and he will continue as president until some unknown future date, but also gets the conservative and partisan Supreme Court to allow him to do so during his exceptional state of living under a virus and gives Trump the green light to chop off the legislative branch of U.S. democracy, giving Trump the total authority he has wanted all along and the total authority the right has wanted in a USA, USA fascist leader for a very long time. Because fascists are very electable in the US despite the so-called greatest generation sacrificing their lives in a war against fascism. Socialism, totally unelectable. Yes, you can be as far right as Hitler if you want in America, but even slightly left of center and you're the freaking antichrist, literally. Trump took the next step of his authoritarian rule on Friday when he tweeted it. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to make a deal with his armed protesters that he sent out to intimidate the people of Michigan. And if you doubt that these protesters are indeed fascists, did you see the sign at the Tennessee pro-virus rally this week that read, reopen business, sacrifice the weak? The very thought was so unbelievable that many online assumed it was a doctored photo. Snopes actually had to post that, yes, it was an absolutely real photo of a real sign at a real protest in a real place called Tennessee, which apparently exists. Sacrificing the weak is about as fascist as it gets. The Democrats for too long have coddled the fascist right from the center, and now the Democrats are doing whatever they can to attract a few of those fledgling fascists to instead... Vote for the Democrats' more sensible pro-business candidate that doesn't come with all that eugenics baggage and makes you not feel as guilty for being complicit in the destructive force of capitalism that is destroying the world through climate change. Those Democrats gave the right cover, letting them frame issues like illegal immigration, accepting corporate control of the public sphere through cons like public-private partnerships, erasing the for-profit nature of privatized education by incorporating terms like charter schools, those Democrats who now boast that they can work with fascists, I mean Republicans. And it wasn't as much as work with Republicans as it was colluding with them and taking the right where it wanted to go toward a fascist America. And that's where we may very well find ourselves sometime between now and Tuesday, November 3rd, or if Trump loses immediately after the election, that is for those of us who survived the virus and are still alive and there still is a vote. But over the weekend, wearing a mask to the fascist right became disrespectful and Stillwater, Oklahoma got so bad the mayor had to rescind their face mask order because essential workers and citizens trying to keep themselves as well as others around them safe are being 
physically threatened by Nazis who see it as disrespectful to wear a mask. Hey, I'm sure Trump is right. They're all very good people because, wait, these aren't good people. These are fascists. And this is hell. Coming up, mutual aid can come to our rescue in the age of the virus and can create a bright future for us post-virus. We'll also have Rotten History and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. What happens when the state, what happens when the market fails to provide people with the very basics necessary to survive in a time of crisis when, again, the government has failed its citizenry? The coronavirus outbreak isn't the first time people have needed help and the neoliberal government was unwilling to provide services. So this time, at least in Queens, they were prepared. Here to talk mutual aid and autonomy, Matt Peterson and Maria Heron are members of Woodbine, an experimental hub in Ridgewood, Queens, New York for developing the practices, skills, and tools needed to build autonomy. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Matt. Hey, thanks for having us. And welcome to This Is Hell, Maria. Hi, thanks so much for having us. Matt is an organizer at Woodbine and is currently helping to coordinate the food pantry. He directed the 2015 documentary Scenes from a Revolt Sustained and 2018 Spaces of Exception. Maria is a member of Woodbine and has transformed Mil Mundos, a nearby Brooklyn bookstore, into a mutual aid hub and depot in collaboration with Bushwick Mutual Aid. You can find out more about Woodbine at their site, woodbine.nyc. And at that site, it says, let's start with you, Matt. It says that Woodbine is a volunteer-run experimental hub in Ridgewood, Queens, for developing the practices, skills, and tools needed to build autonomy. So, Matt, let's start with the very idea of mutual aid. In case people who are listening who do not know what that is, what is mutual aid? And more importantly, how does it differ, say, from a state-run social program when it comes to providing food, housing, shelter, whatever is needed to survive daily life? Uh, well, I think one of the issues is that there are, at first in the pandemic, there weren't a lot of functional state-run programs. So it, when these disasters happen, people have to kind of spontaneously self-organize among themselves and help their neighbors to find information or tools or resources and, in our case, food. And, you know, immediately there is a big need for food because people are out of work. They were forced to stay home. They weren't, didn't really want to take the train or the, the bus. So, you know, they didn't know how to access food. So in our case, we decided to start a food pantry. And, you know, our space is not a food pantry. So we had to spontaneously transform it into one and find supply lines of food, you know, with different networks that we we're able to build and maintain. So this is kind of an example for us of mutual aid it is finding, you know, being able to transform our space like this and find supply lines of food and, you know, not just for other people, but also for ourselves. You know, we're also eating this food because we're also out of work and uh, precarious and in need. And, you know, we've been taking on more volunteers. So it's not us providing food to other people, but it's us, you know, collectively in the neighborhood figuring out how to maintain this supply line and this practice. Matt mentioned the neighborhood, Maria. How is the ne the neighborhood reacting to uh, the work that you are doing? Is your neighborhood a welcoming place? Is it controversial to have your kind of space there? Because I do know that in areas, at least here in Chicago, and I've heard about other places around the country, that where people are providing mutual aid, at times even before the virus, where people are feeding the homeless, there has been pushback either by the community or by the state or by law enforcement. Um, well, I think you have to make sure you have the community in mind and that the lines of communication have been open from the jump, right? Like, uh, we've found, um, in coordinating with different autonomous spaces, you know, like Mio Mundos is kind of an, an offshoot of Woodbine. Um, like it was being a Woodbine member that prompted me to create Mio Mundos for specifically the Latinx and Spanish speaking community of Bushwick. And, um, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. But uh, I think what's critical to that is not providing, not trying to help in an unsolicited way um, and really just making sure that you're listening. And, um, you know, I think uh, Emil Mundos, a lot of the work that we do with Bushwick Mutual Aid would mind being just over the border in Ridgewood, um, giving us a really great balance over the two 
um, neighborhoods. Um, you know, we do a lot of our support in Spanish and a lot of families that don't have access to, um, you know, English support systems or even have devices at home to fill out a Google form sheet, you know, on a lot of these, you know, Google sheets are just like flooding us all for mutual aid. You know, they're just hungry. They just want help. And, you know, there's something really critical to just like listening to what people need. And so this is really what prompted, I think, Matt and I to start with food and to start with, you know, spaces that can function as depots that have just, we just try to, when people say, oh, I need this, I need that, I need diapers, I need food, I need baby food, you know, then that's what we tell the community, like, that that's what's needed, you know, and we're just a liaison at that point. Maria, let me follow up with you just really quickly on that. So, uh, you know, there's always a concern about disparity, uh, technological disparity. And so there might be difficulties for some people to have access to Google Docs. How do you make certain to get the message out to your greater community in a way that isn't limited to only being able to communicate with people electronically? Yeah, absolutely. So um, with Bushwick Mutual Aid specifically, um, we one thing that attracted me and Windows to them is they set up uh, Google Voice lines, um, one in English, one to field Spanish requests. Um, and basically, we have a lot of volunteers that work as intake volunteers that, you know, when there's a missed call, we get an email in the corresponding Google inbox that there was a missed call from this family member. And one of our intake volunteers calls them back. Now, that volunteer um, you know, when we look for volunteers, we're like, do you speak Spanish? Are you bilingual? Like, can you translate? Can you help them fill out this form? Um, and then having mutual aid networks, you know, that, you know, somebody calls, they're like, I'm from South Ridgewood. I don't know who to call, who speaks Spanish in my neighborhood, you know, like we're able to connect them to Woodbine, which is closer to them, you know, cause this is where we all kind of started out of, um, but yeah, having the Google voice numbers has been critical. Um, I would say like my gut check is like 15 to 20% of people are calling from a landline only because that's probably the amount of people when we, when we text them to let them know like, hey, your groceries are here. Those, those are the people that can't field SMS. Um, a lot of people are calling using the same phone number, multiple families calling from one phone number in the same home. Um, and as we found not a lot of these families as well, Spanish is their second language, you know, um, maybe a version of Quechua is their first or another indigenous language, but, um, it really, uh, it's really revealing the disparity that exists. And it's really, um, I think we're doing a great job at, at tackling it for now. Matt, also in the article at EFLUX, Woodbine collectively writes at Woodbine, an autonomous space and organizing framework we have maintained in New York City since 2014. This is what we have been preparing for, this kind of crisis that we're facing right now, to mobilize our network skills, knowledges, and energy to coordinate and provide for each other, while simultaneously building the longer-term capacity to face the future. Matt, why did why were you so certain a crisis would happen? I mean, if you've been preparing for a crisis, why were you so certain it was going to happen? What differentiates you from, I hate to say this, but what differentiates you from preppers? <laughs> I mean, um, I don't know what the distinction is exactly, but, you know, grow, Marie and I are both from New York and growing up in New York, you know, we experienced 9-11 and then, you know, the the financial crisis in 2008 and then, Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And right now, this pandemic is kind of like a combination of all three of them. And after having gone through all of those three situations, you know, the Occupy movement was big for us, which was kind of a delayed response to the financial crisis. And obviously, Hurricane Sandy was a big transformative experience for us in, in testing our capacity to self-organize. But these are really the things that were inspiring us to, to open Woodbine and Ridgewood and kind of self-organize ourselves together there. And, you know, for the last year or so, as the attention has been spent on, you know, the election, you know, there and a lot more energy has been spent on the, the radical left towards, you know, Twitter and social media and things for the screen, you know, we felt maybe that we were becoming a bit anachronistic to maintain a physical space and a hub and have all these bills and expenses. 
And it wasn't until now that we realized like, oh yeah, this is why we did this. You know, this is what, this was our hypothesis all along is that we need physical and material infrastructure to provide for ourselves and provide for other people because, you know, uh, Twitter and, and podcasts and things aren't the only ways that people need to organize and, and people need material things. And this sort of reminded us again of those experiences of the hurricane, the financial crisis, 9-11, these different experiences that we, we always felt like we're going to increase and we're going to put people in New York City, you know, in more and more kind of precarity because there's already the precarity. You know, when when the food pantries first started in Ridgewood around March 10th, there were already long lines around the block. But it wasn't because people had COVID. It was because people were already food insecure and already needed kind of access to, to more food. So the, the crisis is already kind of exacerbating something that already existed. It's just bringing kind of a new visibility to it. And this is the kind of context within which we're trying to self-organize uh, around kind of economic and state kind of dysfunction or collapse or mismanagement. You mentioned Occupy Sandy, Sandy and Woodbine collectively writes in that E-Flux article, the local experience of Hurricane Sandy should also be mentioned as the immediate response revealed both the potentials and limits of a crisis moment like the present. Occupy Sandy was a citywide infrastructure of self-organized disaster relief after the hurricane struck New York in 2012. Some suggested it offered a prefigurative glimpse of disaster communism. However, it could also be argued that the primary function of Occupy Sandy was that of a supplementary service provider within the void left by the state and that it was never able to, pro to become a sustained political formation capable of forcing concessions from the ruling class. So, Matt, just to follow up on what you were saying, does your work that you are currently doing at Woodbine and the previous work that you did at Occupy Sandy prove that Occupy was a success. A lot of people argue that Occupy was not a success. Does Occupy continue to this day in mutual aid to provide the services necessary for us to survive under the virus? I mean, I think with something like Occupy, you have, you know, coming out of the financial crisis response to it, you have a kind of traditional organized institutional left of kind of political parties and unions and, and, electoral campaigns and legislative campaigns and then you have something like occupy which is a bit more subterranean or spontaneous or ad hoc and people are coming together who are not part of those organized forms and i think occupy is really transformative for a lot of people including ourselves at participating in a in a process and a model like that and, and you saw that like you said how that was applied to the hurricane and i think now with the the mutual aid proliferation throughout new york city and the country it's basically like a kind of generalization of Occupy. I mean, I think a lot of these mutual aid hubs like Woodbine or Milmundos or, or others look like the kind of mini encampments or versions of the encampments that you saw during Occupy where you have kind of a lot of people that didn't know each other before coming together, you know, spontaneously out of nowhere and figuring out how to work together and collaborate and meet needs. And, you know, normally with disasters like a hurricane or an earthquake, they're localized. You know, they just happen in one place and everyone kind of floods to that place and kind of figures out how to work together. Now with the pandemic, it's it's generalized. It, it's throughout the city. It's national and it's global. So you don't have this kind of localized relief work. You have this kind of everywhere simultaneously all at once. And that's what we were thinking about the kind of networking or, what you know, what we call the kind of disaster confederalism or something where all of these mutual aid hubs and groups are going to have to figure out as this goes on how to interface and network and collaborate with each other. And this is this kind of alternative or autonomous or subterranean form of organization that I think we're going to have to see, you know, not just with the medical crisis, but with the social and economic crisis that is going to extend for months, if not years. I want to make sure that everybody knows that they can contribute to Woodbine at either with friends, that's withfriends.co slash woodbine slash join, or Patreon, patreon.com slash woodbine. And again, you can find out all about Woodbine at their website. Again, that's woodbine.nyc. Maria, in the eFlux article, it states that 
Woodbine is about deliberating how, if, and when to activate our space as an infrastructural hub within the crisis beyond the current period of isolation. This will require building relationships and trust to find and become reliable collaborators who can assess their and others' risk and capacity. We are asking people to think seriously about what this time calls for. Maria, how can you build those kinds of relationships for post-virus living under the virus and the kind of isolation that we are going through right now? Doesn't sheltering in place undermine most of our ability to organize for a post-virus world? Um, Well, it, it can certainly feel that way, but I think that especially people who have spaces who have who have put so much work you know like i think especially with a space like woodbine we have other friends that uh, and other comrades that have you know small businesses or that have leases commercial leases long-term leases that how do we how to create this space is both figuratively and literally um where congregating in person is just not an option um and i think it just necessitates like a radical reimagination of um, how we use these spaces. For example, you know, both Woodbine and Mil Mundos, you know, we don't really allow more than two or three people in the space at a time. Um, but they have become these tremendous warehouses. Um, the conversations that we carry and that we try to um, engage others in, now it's not so domestic. Now it's not just Ridgewood and Bushwick. Now that we're making it more available digitally, you know, more, more available online, we're seeing engagement from, you know, around the country, around the world. Um, and it's this kind of space making that, you know, it's not just space for us, but space for like, what kind of conversations are we prioritizing? I guess the silver lining of us all being out of work is that we have, you know, some time to, um, really prioritize these conversations that we're already, that already had a desperate need beforehand, just like Matt was saying, you know, that this is just exacerbating problems that were obviously already here. Um, yeah, I mean, how we use our spaces is, is yet to be written, you know, um, but the only way that they're really going to serve us and serve our community is if we're deciding as a network and as a unit, so. Uh, Matt, how sustainable do you think these kind of networks can be post-virus? Is there a danger in people feeling that these are only kinds of actions that happen during a state of emergency, and then they're just swept under the rug and waiting for another crisis to appear, and then that's all they become? So how sustainable do you think these kind of networks can remain post-virus? I mean, I think it depends on the relationships we and everyone builds in the midst of this virus or this crisis. You know, like our network or friendships came out of, you know, the student movement in 2008 and 2009 in New York and then Occupy and then Sandy. So we've maintained a certain amount of relationships now for more than 10 years that we've been able to sustain Woodbine. And then, you know, Momundos is a kind of outgrowth of that. So we're already a kind of testament of people that have passed through different social movements or disasters. And now, you know, the, the sustainability of the project just requires more and more people to get involved because people have different knowledges and skills and resources and, and different networks that can extend into things to, to increase supply lines and maintain, you know, staffing of the spaces um, and have different ideas or networks or contexts about things we can acquire and get, you know, so, so the sustainability is, is tied into the relationships we're able to build. You know, it's not that myself and Maria, you know, ourselves were, are able to maintain these projects or spaces. You know, we need help and we need, you know, the energy and kind of commitment and investment from dozens, if, you know, if not hundreds of people as this goes forward. And, you know, I really think, you know, the viral crisis, I don't necessarily think is going away anytime soon. As from what I understand, yesterday was the largest kind of death toll in the United States. So I think, you know, despite what the government is saying, you know, I think it's going to be a longer term situation. And then obviously, you know, the economic and social effects of that are going to last far longer. 
So, you know, I think people, you know, for better or worse, have a lot of time on their hands right now. And they have to be thinking about, you know, how they apply themselves to really help other people. And that's another big part of mutual aid. You know, a lot of people are sitting at home trying to protect themselves or they're on Netflix or ordering food delivery. And at some point or another, their attention is going to have to shift towards other people. You know, how do they help other people? And how do they get involved in projects like this? And, and you know, that's the only thing that will, that will really sustain any of this. Well, Matt, how is your supply chain? Are you equally impacted as the local stores are when it comes to shortages, particularly of meat and milk, which are reportedly in decreasing supplies? So are you, do you have face the exact same challenges as any other food supply chain? Or does your farm shared network make it so you can circumvent the more conglomerated, centralized food distribution chain? Yeah, I mean, it's two, I guess it's two things. With the pantry, it is affected by the general supply chain where we have seen a decrease in meat sort of coming in. And, you know, we've only really been able to provide milk once. You know, we mostly provide produce like vegetables and fruit. And, you know, we get some bread and pasta and rice, things like this. But this is all coming, you know, we're, we're in partnership with a a homeless outreach organization called Hungry Monk, and that's, you know, 90% of the food comes through them, through the partnership with them. Um, and recently we've been kind of putting pressure on some elected officials in the neighborhood because we've been doing this for more than a month, maybe six, seven weeks now. So they're finally coming around to help us, you know, find and get more food. Um, but, you know, that's not everything. You know, people still need to buy, you know, things like milk, uh, meat, you know, the, those things where we, you know, we're not supplying. But like you said, we also separately run a farm share in the summer and winter seasons out of the space. And this this summer's farm share for us is going to be our largest one in the last five years. There's more than 100 people have signed up already, which is close to double of what, what it will normally be. And, it, and it's only growing. And, and the farm share provides vegetables, fruit, meats, you know, dairy, yogurt, cheese, you know, all of these things from an organic farm in the Hudson Valley, which is just north of the city. And I think more and more you're seeing, you know, not just us, but more people wanting to develop these own autonomous supply chains directly from the farmers and the people growing and, and kind of producing the food. So, you know, it's not that we extra advertise or circulated the farm share, but I think people after going through this crisis and disaster realized that they needed autonomous forms of food and also wanted to support these local farmers, you know, rather than, you know, just the traditional supermarkets or something. So, you know, this is another kind of exciting, interesting outcome is seeing these networks grow and proliferate. Maria, in an article at Commune Mag, Woodbine writes, the spring of that first year is when we started our weekly Sunday dinners. This was back in COVID uh, or after uh, Hurricane Sandy, which continued consistently until the arrival of COVID-19 last month. This regular gathering to cook and share food was meant to break out of the dogmatic professionalizing and instrumentalizing modes of relation among activists in the city. The idea was that the rhythm and temporality of collective meals maintained consistently for dozens of people on a weekly basis would enrich and deepen both our relationships and the organizational work that came out of them. Collective activities build communities. Do these activities, do they need speeches and political PowerPoint presentations to teach the audience about a revolution, or is the revolution simply getting people to sit down and share a meal together? Um, <laughs> definitely the latter. Um, yeah, it's... Uh... Even in the ways that Woodbine dinners have continued in in this kind of social distancing era, um, you know, the first week that we didn't have dinner, we were we were kind of shook. We were like, well, "This never happens. We always have dinner." And um, the, the very next week, you know, we, the way we organize, we organize through. You know, people are organizing through Slack and Zoom calls, you know, and at Woodbine, we often organize through various um, networks on Signal. Um, and there's just like so many people that were so interested in just jumping on a, a shared video call. People that normally wouldn't engage, even if there were technical issues, they're like, OK, well, let's figure it out. Like, how do we have dinner together? You know? 
Um, how do we navigate, like, just as I was saying before, that the spaces that we've created, that we are going to create, have yet to be written, but so many people are so galvanized to write them together, um, even if it's just to have a meal together. You're not even eating the same thing at this point. Some people aren't even eating, you know. Um, but just to share space together, um, the ways in which you know, maybe people haven't really met one another or, you know, maybe it's always like me or Matt hosting dinner. Um, kudos to Matt, normally Matt. Um, but now it's like, you know, I've, I've hosted some of the dinners since this whole pandemic and, you know, passing it off to other people who may, may not have felt so empowered to facilitate such a thing where I'm like, oh, well, you know, I have a call Sunday night, maybe can you host this dinner? And then it becomes so much more horizontal um, and autonomous in this way. Um, I think that for me, the most revolutionary part of that is watching people learn how to carry their own revolutions in their own hearts. Is the goal then, Maria, is the goal to live outside of the market, outside of the state, outside of capitalism, to live off the grid, even if you are living within the grid in Queens? Um, I think it certainly serves us better. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's, uh, I, I guess it's a goal. Yes. Um, you know, how do you, how do you reject the current paradigm while still, you know, being held within it? I think that, you know, deprioritizing commerce, capital, these sorts of things and prioritizing exactly what we're talking about, mutual aid, you know, like prioritizing how someone else is doing, you know, and this balance of autonomy and accountability, you know, who takes care of us? We have to take care of us. Um, and I think that really what's going on and really what really um, is helping move things along is that everyone is more or less on the same page. It's, it's not so much like, what are people able to do? Maybe, you know, a lot of people are like, damn, I should have learned how to sew, I guess, you know, <laughs> like, or I should have learned how to, everyone's cooking a new thing, you know, like learning a new skill, watching obscene amounts of YouTube tutorials right now in this time. But um, we're all learning together and we're all learning with, with the main priority in mind, how to take care. How to, how to how to really deliberately do that um, to sustain and and to survive. Yeah, it's really funny because before the virus hit, uh, myself and the producer of the show, Alex, we were talking about what is, a, you know, unfortunately, we have to earn money to be able to pay for the space and whatnot. Uh, what is a piece of merchandise that we could sell that would be sustainable, that would be actually revolutionary? And the first thing we came up with was a sewing kit. Because it's something that you can keep forever and it's something that you can use that will make it so you're not reproducing capitalism because you might be just fixing up your your own clothes. Uh, so uh, just real quick here, Matt, you were mentioning something earlier about people just, you know, wanting to wait until it's all over and just keeping to themselves, keeping entertained and isolated until it's all over. Matt, what impact does only hoarding, entertaining ourselves, waiting until it's all over? What does that have on what it will be like when it is all over? By not working together, by just waiting it out, are we just returning to normal? And what's so wrong with normal? Well, I mean, I think even before the pandemic, you saw socially this move to, to, to how people kind of behaved in, in New York City. But I think in a lot of places where people spent more and more time home alone, more and more time on their screens, more and more time on Netflix you know, we're eating more and more through food delivery of like Seamless and Grubhub, you know, people are working more and more remotely. And I think the pandemic just, you know, Amazon, obviously the, the way Amazon, Amazon Prime, you know, relate to our lives. And, you know, the pandemic is just putting all of those things in hyperdrive and pushing us further and further into this kind of isolated kind of individualism and, you know, there's obviously large parts of the economy that I think are happy to see this kind of escalate and and kind of, you know, to push even even further. And, and spaces like Woodbine and Milmundos were asking people, you know, normally to come together in person 
and put down your phone and kind of eat together outside of delivery services and kind of order, you know, buy books or kind of order things and, and relate to culture in a kind of tactile way. And the pandemic is really putting that in a, in a crisis and putting that in a, in a mode. And what you're seeing is that people who kind of will accept this kind of new future cybernetic horizon of, of Amazon and Zoom and Netflix and kind of food delivery or, you know, will kind of kind of fight for a different thing. And, and it's not, you know, just a choice for some people. That's a choice for a lot of people. That's not a choice. You know, a lot of people are not going to be able to work through Zoom. You know, that's not the way they, they have income and, and make money. And they're not going to be able to order things through Amazon. And they're not going to be able to be entertained through through Netflix and all of these things. And as kind of radicals or revolutionaries or something, we have to ask ourselves, are we, you know, going to align ourselves with the people left out of this new kind of technological dystopia? Or are we just going to accept it? You know, and, and, and the acceptance is in many ways, kind of allowing ourselves to think that, you know, Governor Cuomo or President Trump, you know, have our best interests at heart. And if we just sit home and wait, you know, at the end of this, there'll be some some normalcy. And, you know, obviously that's not the case. And we don't think that's the case. And we don't want that to be the case. You know, the normalcy of early March or February was, was already dis dysfunctional and dystopic in many ways. And this is just bringing that to a kind of greater visibility. So the mutual aid or the kind of work we're doing is not just for this kind of viral crisis, but it's also kind of hopefully a kind of awakening to different ways of living and different forms of life and different forms of cooperation or self-organization that we think are necessary and vital. You know, so this is, you know, in some ways, unfortunately, the opportunity we we have or we found ourselves in to really put our spaces and projects and organizational forms, um, you know, at the forefront now. And I think it's, you know, the the amount of participation of what we're doing is exponentially grown. You know, there's way more people that know about Woodbine and Momundos now than did, you know, three months ago. Maria, what does it say about the state? What does it say about the market? What mutual aid can do for the public, what capitalism and the nation state cannot? Um, well, I think it says that it's become a simulation of itself, um, and that it, that it's, you know, dangerously out of touch. Um, and I don't know how obvious those two statements are to your listeners. <laughs> Sorry if it's a little, um, plain to say, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think exactly, you know, what Matt's saying for me to, the, the idea of waiting for the governor of my state to help me is, it's like, feels wild, you know? Um, because what goes on in media discourse right now is just so far from the needs on the street today. Like people are hungry today. People call and they're like, I haven't had food in two days, you know, I don't know how you're supposed to tell a mother of three who lives with her sisters and their kids to leave their kids, to go to a public school, to wait for two sandwiches, to come back. Like, it's just, it's just so out of touch. And um, there just doesn't seem to be, of course, also like the legitimacy of a person, right? The legitimacy of like, oh, well, you know, you, you're going to get direct deposit money, like assuming you were eligible for a bank account, assuming you had access to these sorts of systems in your language, you know, assuming you're not, assuming you had a say at all. And there's just, for me, I think that, um, you know, having, having access, even if it's in the form of a window, a delivery window, or, you know, the steps of Woodbine, just being able to come up to someone, obviously six feet apart, but just come, come to a space that is handing you food. Like, let's just start there, you know, because you need to be okay in order to like continue to, for this to be sustainable. We have to first make sure that we're all okay. Um, and then, you know, and then we can think more long-term. Um, I think the state maybe is just thinking about, you know, economics and, the sustainability of the status quo, which wasn't for everyone in the first place.
And you mentioned the media narrative, and that is has really surprised me a lot, Maria, is that CBS Evening News ends every broadcast with a feel-good story. And it's usually an individual who has given money to another individual. It's always about an individual story and not something about addressing larger systemic issues. And I was surprised, actually, back in 2012 when Occupy Sandy was getting national news coverage for their amazing mutual aid work that Occupy Sandy had been doing. So, Maria, why do you think it is that it it seems like at least uh, TV news media is more than willing to celebrate individual actions and work done by quote-unquote heroes and seemingly is ignoring the work that's being done by tens, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, in mutual aid? Um... Well, I think it would be if 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 they went that route, right? It would it would be acknowledging the failure of a paradigm, um, and I suppose the mutual aid networks don't pay them to report the news. Um, but yeah, it's always it's always trying to remind people, I guess, in these individual stories, um, or like convince people that they have agency within this paradigm. And I feel like the most agency people have um, on their own is to reject it, right? And and to just go out and work together. You know, there's only so much one person can do, but when you team up, like what Matt was saying, like we need help, you know, we can't just, me and Matt can't do this alone, you know, two spaces. And Woodbine and Mimundos, they have teams. They have Bushwick Mutual Aid and, and the mutual aid that goes on with Hungry Monk and, and Ridgewood. You know, these are massive teams that are working together. Um, you have tens, like you said, tens of thousands of people on the same page. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe uh, it doesn't necessarily benefit the media narrative to highlight teamwork in that way um, to just kind of satiate people in the interim and be like, it's okay, like your small deed is enough i don't know if it's enough (laughs) but um yeah it's just i don't see the benefit really for the media to highlight these mutual aid networks um so yeah i don't yeah it just doesn't make sense that they would i guess i'm not surprised (laughs) matt uh how secretive is mutual aid right now how much is there a difficulty between wanting to be safe and secure and at the same time have an outreach to your community because i can imagine as we started this conversation that there would eventually be obstacles to this kind of service within the nation state a revolution is illegal there is no alternative because it's illegal to have an alternative so uh, how secretive are you right now and is that an obstacle to getting your services to the people who need them No, I think it's the opposite. And that's one of the big contradictions is we're being as public as we can possibly be right now with the work we're doing. And, you know, our food lines, you know, on on our pantry days is hundreds of people lining up around the block. And, you know, there's nothing that the city or the state can do to, to say that that can happen. You know, we're, I mean, effectively we're, we qualify as essential workers, right? Because we're doing, you know, so, so-called charitable work for those in need. So we, we kind of are not under the, the stay-at-home orders. Um, but one of the kind of the, the real contradictions is with the mutual aid work is when the politicians themselves put out calls for mutual aid and, and they themselves put out calls for neighbors have to help each other and we all need to step up and do the work and, you know, it's one thing for, for me and Maria to talk about, but it, it feels different when a politician says that. We're like, we don't need you to tell us to do the mutual aid. You know, you should be doing your job and, and passing legislation and getting kind of state resources to these things. And, you know, we've had some politicians who want to come volunteer with us and, and have a photo op of them handing out pantry. And it's like, we don't need you to hand out the pantry bags. We need you to figure out how to cancel rent you know, how to kind of pass legislation that that really helps people, how to give people more, you know, how to increase the stimulus packages so people have more of an income coming in for the months ahead. You, I don't think this 
single $1,200 Trump bucks is really going to get very far, you know, and, you know, we've already seen the rent strikes, you know, informally or explicitly on April 1st or May 1st, but what about, you know, June 1st or July 1st? So, you know, the, the, the public aspect or the secretive aspect is the real contradiction of, you know, politicians themselves wanting to participate in mutual aid is a direct acknowledgement that their paradigm of governance doesn't work. You know, when you have a politician on a food pantry line helping, you know, they don't need to be on the food pantry line helping. You know, the whole point of the food pantry line is because the political paradigm has failed and the economic system has failed. And we don't need you to volunteer to kind of help us prove that. And this is kind of what you're seeing. And, and the visibility is for us to be doing this work so publicly is precisely to prove and demonstrate that, you know, this needs to happen more and more. Just like it happened in the hurricane and after the financial crisis, people need to self-organize because the government and the economy, you know, are not functional, even in normal times, in providing the needs that they're supposedly organized to do. And this is just proving that and bringing that to a greater visibility. So I think that's really the opportunity that we're kind of living in or seeing right now is seeing all these structural contradictions kind of made manifest. We have been speaking with Matt Peterson and Maria Heron, members of Woodbine, an experimental hub in Ridgewood, Queens, New York, for developing the practices, skills, and tools needed to build autonomy. You can find out more about Woodbine at their site, woodbine.nyc. We have one last question for each of you. Our final question for each and every one of our guests on our show is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. I'm going to start with you, Matt, because it's something that just I just thought of as you were speaking. To what extent does that kind of self-organizing, that kind of parallel state, prove to those who are libertarian, prove to those who are pro-business, that everybody can just take care of themselves and therefore we don't need social security, we don't need safety nets, we don't need universal health care, everything will take care of themselves. How much do you how much is there a fear that that kind of self-organizing will prove libertarians correct? Well, I mean, one of the reasons why we talk about dual power is to recognize that there's different forms of power existing already in, in the, how the world works. And while we're doing the mutual aid work, we're using it as a kind of opportunity to put pressure on the the government and the local elected officials. And as I was saying before, they have already been forced to step up out of kind of embarrassment or shame to find us more masks, more PPE, more food, because it's clear to so many hundreds of people that we're providing a greater service than they are. They don't they don't see or hear anything from the elected officials. So the, the work of, of mutual aid should be forced to kind of put pressure and leverage on the government or elected officials more so than just totally seceding. You know, we need more help from them. We need rent legislation. We need more stimulus money. You know, we need more things. And by self-organizing, it's not to totally leave, you know, social security but to hopefully put more pressure on it because, you know, they can't just exist without us. That's a good answer to the question from Al. Now you, Maria, uh, is Woodbine, Mil Mil Mundos, Mutual Aid, is this all a communist conspiracy? Maria, would you feed a fascist? (laughs) (laughs) Nah. <laughs> so no to it's a conspiracy might, or no to the feeding the fascist. But I might I might try to engage them <laughs> in some sort of dialogue as to why they think that their approach is sustainable in any way. Um and um yeah. I don't know. I and everything Matt said. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, yeah. Maria. I appreciate both of you being on the show. We're going to want to do a follow-up at some point in the future and get an update from you guys. So thank you so much for being on the show. You are doing fantastic work. And anybody listening anywhere in the world right now, you can participate in mutual aid as well. Reach out to your local uh, people who are engaging in mutual aid and do what you can to help. Don't just sit at home and wait till it's all over. Engage with your community. Do the revolutionary act of meeting your neighbor. That's a pretty revolutionary act nowadays. Thank you so much for being on our show, Matt and Maria. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Live from Late Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On May 4th, 1886, 134 years ago today, Monday, after four days of unrest in Chicago, as thousands of the city's workers went on strike demanding improved conditions in an eight-hour workday, an initially peaceful evening demonstration at the city's Haymarket Square suddenly turned violent after police moved to silence a speaker and ordered the crowd to disperse. I can't remember what the speaker was talking about, but I remember there was a reason why they wanted to shut that speaker down. I just remembered, damn it, wish I would have looked it up before the show. A bomb thrown by an unknown person exploded, killing several police, and the police responded by firing into the crowd. So nobody actually knows who threw the bomb. Some think it was the cops. Some think it was the protesters. Why the protesters would throw their own bomb into a crowd of protesters, uncertain. The chaos resulted in the deaths of seven police and at least four demonstrators, perhaps as many as seven, as well as injury to unknown dozens of demonstrators, many of whom were afraid to seek medical help. Okay, more protesters were hurt than cops, but more cops were killed than protesters. However, we really don't know how many were hurt or killed, for that matter, because demonstrators were living in fear of the police. The bombing was soon blamed on anarchists, of course. Why not? Anarchists, sure. Eight of whom were convicted of conspiracy. Four of them would later be hanged. Maybe there was good reason for protesters to not report their injuries, because if you did, you might end up being hung. While two others received life sentences and another committed suicide in prison by detonating a blasting cap in his mouth, blowing up his face, which would not be my preferred method or choice of suicide, definitely not, amid growing international outrage over what many perceived as an unfair trial, Illinois Governor John Peter Altgeld pardoned three other defendants. The identity of the actual bomb thrower was never determined. Altgeld would have a public housing structure named after him on the south side, which would have all sorts of toxins in the ground. So I don't know about you, but my money for throwing the bomb is going to go on... The police set off the bomb to disperse the crowd, and now the police have a memorial to the police officers who were probably killed by bungling police and not riding anarchists, as Chicago history would like you to believe. In Rotten History, May 4th, 1970, 50 years ago, also today, Monday, four unarmed college students were shot dead when National Guard troops opened fire on a crowd of 3,000 demonstrators on the campus of Kent State University. May 4th, not a good day to be an unarmed protester with the force of the state coming down on protesters who are exercising their freedom of speech. Don't worry, far-right armed protesters carrying Confederate flags and sporting swastikas inside state capitals. The police never come for you. The students were protesting the U.S. expansion of the Vietnam War into the neutral neighboring state of Cambodia. Ordered a few days earlier by President Richard Nixon, 28 guardsmen fired more than 60 shots within 13 seconds. Nine other students were wounded, including one who was left permanently paralyzed. In a famous news photograph of the event, a 14-year-old runaway named Mary Ann Vecchio, had, who happened by chance to be visiting the campus of Kent State, was seen kneeling and crying over the body of murdered student Jeffrey Miller. You always think it's another college student leaning over her classmate, but no, it's some random runaway, which makes the image even more weird and haunting. Amid the media frenzy that followed, Florida Governor Claude Kirk called Vecchio a communist. Yikes. And she received a barrage of hate mail and harassment that she later said destroyed her life. And you thought fascist trolls were an invention of social media. Nope, fascist trolls have been around since there were trolls. The Cambodian invasion urged upon by Nixon, or urged upon Nixon by National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, because Kissinger's pure evil, had been opposed by both Secretary of State William Rogers and Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird. It was later credited with destabilizing that country and enabling the rise of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, who were later held responsible for the deaths of between one and three million people. How Henry Kissinger went from being responsible for genocide to a foreign policy genius is to this date uncertain. Finally, in Rotten History, May 8th, or May 8th 1945, 75 years ago this Friday, 
On the day of the Nazi German surrender that ended the Second World War in Europe, a violent clash broke out between police and members of the local Arab and Berber population of the city of Satif in the French colony of Algeria. A parade celebrating the war's end had drawn a crowd of several thousand there, and it started out peacefully. But some of the marchers were carrying banners calling for the end of French colonial rule, and this angered officers of the French police who tried to take the banners away, so Algerians were celebrating the end of the Second World War, which meant the end of Nazi occupation of France, and the Algerians also liked the idea of no longer being occupied, while the French did not see any contradiction in occupying Algeria against its will. Got it. The ensuing scuffle led to an exchange of gunfire in which both demonstrators and police sustained casualties. Meanwhile, the French police also attacked a peaceful anti-colonial demonstration in the neighboring town of Galma because the French were dicks even on the day after the Nazis were defeated. The violence in Satif and Galma quickly escalated in the days that followed as French police and military labored to brutally suppress the rebellion that spread across the region because nothing says peace like brutal repression. The French even resorted to aerial bombing and summary executions. Estimates vary widely regarding the number of people on both sides of the conflict who were killed within weeks from 6,000 to as many as 20,000. The bloody events in Satif and Gelma were a key factor leading to the Algerian War of Independence in 1954 and finally to the French departure from Algeria in 1962. Yep, it wouldn't only take another 17 freaking years for the French to finally give up on occupying Algeria in 17 more years for Algeria's Second World War to come to an end. That's Rotten History, and this is how Alex, please tell me the rest of this week's guests. Or just tomorrow's. Let's just tell people tomorrow's. All right, uh, tomorrow we're talking with Ariella Aisha Azale about her book, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. Enjoy that 622 page show. <laughs> I'm your bitter, blind, broke Oh, say, hey, just one thing I yes, just sir. want to follow up on. If anyone is interested in finding local uh, mutual aid uh, sources, you go to Cindy Milstein, Pascal Cindy Milstein's Instagram, so that's Instagram.com slash Cindy Milstein 1L. Um, in her profile, she has a link to uh, a disaster, mutual aid disaster relief sign-up sheet uh, with like just hundreds of regions. So if uh, you scroll down there, you can find some place doing work around your area that if you're interested in, it's a good place to get in touch. And I know that there is one up here on uh, Chicago's far north side and another one over on the northwest side. I know that Food Not Bombs has been doing a lot of this mutual aid work forever. I mean, they've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years by now, I think. Maybe we need food and bombs. <laughs> Maybe. that That's a different organization, Alex, and I can hook you up with them later on. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Matt and Maria, today's guests. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for doing Rotten History. Always special thanks to Theron Humiston, who set up our place here, our studio here, and Richard Norwood for putting together our archives. This is not the media. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>